0: Let's pray. Lord, this is the highlight of our week, and no better way to begin a week. This is, as we so often forget, the first day of the week. And we come now to worship you together, singing your praises, praying, I trust, throughout. That you would give us grace to hear what your spirit has to say to your church this morning, not just this church, but every faithful church around the world. Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you for all of the blessings that it reveals, all the privileges that it has for us in Christ, and all of the warnings that we find that are... On the one hand, they feel heavy, and yet, oh, Father, where would we be without the warning signs that protect us from falling into misery and sin because we didn't know any better apart from your warnings? And so, Father, help us to heed the call this morning and to consider our lives And how we need to change, not to establish or to fulfill some legalistic rules, but rather because there's nothing more that we love than to please Jesus and to fellowship with him. So help us now, Father, I pray, and I ask it all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are in Colossians chapter 3 again this morning, and uh, we're going to be moving more rapidly this week and next, uh, just because of the way the text is laid out. And and I hope you're looking forward to this, because I am. The soul-satisfying grace of God should make us hate our sin. The soul-satisfying grace of God should make us hate our sin. Near the city of Jerusalem, some 700 years ago, the prophet by the name of Jeremiah served as God's messenger to his people, Israel. His, however, was not a happy message. The centuries following Israel's successful capture of the promised land were filled with stories of God's incredible blessing along with Israel's unfaithfulness. The spiritual shepherds in Israel had led people, the people astray. God's covenant with them had been violated on every side. His commandments were being ignored. The nation had indeed become prosperous, just as God had said. But the people had given themselves over to sexual promiscuity and blatant idolatry, and the abandonment of even the most basic teachings of the Word of God. Does that not sound like our own generation? God's message, then, was that his patience had come to an end. And just as he had promised that if they abandoned him, he would bring the covenantal curses against them, and he was about to, their land was about to be attacked by The only ruling superpower, Babylon. Many in Israel and in Jerusalem in particular would be killed, captured, led into exile. Think Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, think Daniel, and a number of others. And there they would be kept for 70 years, according to the word of the Lord. In chapter 2 of Jeremiah's message, then, God explains to his people why they had arrived at such a dark moment in their history. And here is what he said through the prophet. And I quote, I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruit and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not even know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, and went after things that did not profit. Therefore, I contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the Coasts of Cyprus and see and send to Kadar "'and examine with care and see if there has been such a thing. "'Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are not gods? "'But my people have changed their glory "'for that which does not profit.' Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have, number one, forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have, number two, hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, end quote. I think this narrative is an appropriate place to begin this morning because I think Paul is attempting to help us not make the same mistake that Israel made. And to this very day, God offers himself as the overflowing fountain who satisfies our souls if we will come to him. And most of us here today would claim that we have drunk deeply from its spring. We remember that as Jesus sat at Jacob's well speaking with the woman whose whose own cistern was love of men, of which she had had five and was apparently on her sixth, he claimed to her that he was, in bodily form, the very fountain of living water that Jeremiah had spoken of and that she so desperately needed. Moreover, he said, the water that I will give to you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Not just salvation from sin, but life, eternal life. By these words, Jesus was, and still is, inviting all people everywhere to come and satisfy their thirsty souls in him by the power of free, redeeming grace. And when that happens, when a sinner surrenders to Christ and hangs all of their hope upon him, his atoning death, his righteous, resurrected life, that person suddenly experiences a new relationship with God. It's amazing. It's more amazing than you think. No longer does God consider you as an object of his just and holy wrath. Now, when God thinks about you, he thinks of you as united, inextricably united with Christ. And you are united with Christ in every meaningful respect. In other words, everything that Christ is and owns is now ours. It's phenomenal. It it stretches our ability to believe it. It is so good. Everything Jesus is and owns is ours. His death is ours, his resurrection is ours, his righteousness is ours, his holiness is ours. His ascension to the Father's throne where he sits today is ours. His kingdom is ours, his glory is ours, his father is ours, his family is ours, his home is ours. His name is ours. His joy is ours. His wisdom is ours. His mind is ours. His spirit is ours. His promises are ours. His people are ours. The world is ours. And the list goes on, though my page stops. It is beyond, I think, our comprehension or our ability to fully comprehend. We are touching barely the edges of his garment when we attempt to think of these things. But what many missed and Israel completely ignored is that when our hearts are savingly satisfied in Christ, when we have come to the fountain of living water, we not only get a new relationship with God, we also get a new relationship to sin. You say that you have a new relationship with Christ, then I will ask you, the Apostle Paul will ask you, yes, but do you also have a new relationship with sin? Because if that hasn't changed, then maybe you, you may not have the relationship with Christ that you thought. I believe this is precisely Paul's message to the believers in Colossae and to us this morning. But don't take my word for it. Let's stand and read it together. And I want to read it in context, so we'll start with Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and try to follow along with me now. I'm reading out of the ESV. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, Here there is no Greek, and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, or however you say that word, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. May the Lord add his blessing on the reading of his word, and you can be seated. For just over half of this letter... The mostly Gentile believers in Colossae, Paul has set before them Jesus. And pretty much everything that he's talked about to this point is either Jesus or is pointing toward Jesus. His, his mission in writing this letter is to lay before you, stand before you, the preeminence of Christ, in whom The whole fullness of deity dwells, and we are complete in him, Paul says. And through him, we now have a new and eternal relationship with God. Nevertheless, as long as we live east of Eden and south of heaven, we will certainly be tempted to sin in many of the same old ways that we have sinned in the past, even ways we especially sin before we came to know Christ. The question is, since we have this new relationship with God and all has been forgiven in Christ forever, does sin even matter anymore? Does God care that we sin? Some evangelicals will say no, many. In fact, more in our day than perhaps ever before. They would say, no, it it doesn't matter anymore. Paul, however, responds with a resounding, oh, yes, it does. Your sin still matters. Don't confuse the towering, massive outpouring of God's grace as a license to sin. That's, when we get to Romans, we'll, we'll talk about that more deeply. But yes, your sin matters to God. Make no mistake, he wants all of our temptation and sin to be utterly defeated. Not only in principle, but in practice as well. He wants our formal theology of our having died with Christ and risen with Christ and now we're new people. He wants that formal theology to be manifest in the practical theology of subduing sin and living a holy life. And here's how I prefer to say it, and the reason I prefer to say it this way is because I don't want to misconstrue or communicate in such a a way that when misconstrue what Paul has in mind here, he's not saying that the core of Christianity is you wrestling with your sin. And so for this message, I, I word it like this the soul-satisfying grace of God should make us hate our sin. Emphasis is on the soul-satisfying grace of God. The emphasis is on the living water. Christ, who is the spring of living water. Beloved, I tell you, if you can get your heart drinking deeply, From that stream, then the grip of sin will lose its hold, and you will be much more successful in your battles against temptation. Paul's message in these seven short verses are broken into two neat sections, thankfully, and each one of the two are followed by what I'm just going to call a motivating statement. One negative and one positive. And, and if you love literature, there's a lot more here that you can dig out of this. But for the sake of the message, I'm not going to get bogged down in the woods and weeds. The first section we might call defeating sin, defeating sins against your body. And I'll explain that as we go. And the second one, defeating sins against Christ's body. The first comes at us. Right at the beginning, chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul begins talking about defeating sins against your body or killing sins against your own body. Now, at the beginning, chapter 3, verse 5, notice the conjunction, therefore. In the New American Standard, the verse begins with that word, therefore. And whenever we come across the word, therefore, we know that Paul's about to build on something that he has already taught us. Namely, the things that he, one thing that he taught us in chapter two, verse 20, and listen to this, you have died with Christ. Likewise, in chapter three, verse one, you have been raised with Christ. I mean, these are the main pillars of what Paul is saying all the way through this, this book. You've died with Christ. You have raised with Christ. And then, chapter 3, verse 3, you have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And by now, we understand that Paul is appealing to us based on the benefits we have by virtue of our union with Christ. Our union with Christ. We get everything we get from God by virtue of our union with Christ which we have freely received by grace through faith. Now, what's Paul's appeal here? What, what does he want us to do in light of the fact that we have died with Christ and been raised with Christ? Well, Paul makes it very clear. And, and look at your Bible. Here's what he says. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death. I mean, this is the, uh, we, we talk about uh, active and in, in, indicative imperatives a lot because, you know, you're always on the lookout for them when you're, when you're studying the scriptures. And this is one. Be about the business every day of your life of putting to death that which is earthly in you. Now, this is interesting because normally when we hear Paul talk about death, he means the death of Christ who died to free us from the penalty Of sin. But here Paul is talking about a kind of death or a kind of killing that we ruthlessly bring down upon our own persistent temptations and sins. The word for put to death can also be translated to render impotent or powerless. And actually, I prefer that translation, just because I know what I know about humanity, uh, Christian humanity, and what I know about me. I know that in this life there are certain temptations that return again and again and again. They seem to haunt me, and they do you. You may not be able to kill, if by kill we mean You know, it's dead and it stays dead and never comes back, right? I mean, if that's what we're talking about, we never think about it again. We are having a robust conversation about this among the staff this week. I mean, that's the goal. We don't want to ever even think about those sins again, let alone give in to them. But the reality is life is war. Life is war. And, of course, Christ has won the war, but we still have to battle Until the final documents of surrender have been signed when we see Jesus face to face. And so you may not be able to kill them in the sense that we think of as killing unto death completely in this life. But you do have the power to render temptation impotent and powerless in your life in any moment where that battle is fought. And Paul wants us to know that you can do that. Listen carefully. You can do that even with the most enslaving kinds of sin. It doesn't matter what they are. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. What kind of sin is Paul talking about? Well, he actually names five here that were especially relevant in his day with these people. I'm calling them sins against one's own body. And look closely and you will see that these are all sexual sins. He's talking about sexual sin. The first one is porneia in the Greek, which is the word uh, from which we get pornography. It really is just a reference to any kind of sexual immorality. The next word is impurity. I'm not going to define all of these. Passion. Uh, passion would be the strong emotions that come with sexual sin, evil desire, I, I will mention this one, epithumia, it's strong desire. It's mentioned again and again in the New Testament. It's mentioned in James 4. Why do you fight and quarrel? It's because of your strong desire, but here it's, it's focused on the lust of sexual desire. And then he says covetousness, which he identifies as idolatry. That's interesting. And by the way, that's especially interesting, and it may be the phrase that led me back to Jeremiah chapter 2, because that's what God was dealing with primarily when he talked about them abandoning the fountain of living water and digging for themselves broken cisterns, cisterns that are broken and can hold no water. He was mostly talking about idolatry, but there's many kinds of idolatry. And by the way, this, in this case, when we're talking about sexual sin, this is a direct reflection of the Tenth Commandment, which warns from coveting your neighbor's wife. Listen, isn't it amazing how relevant Paul's warnings are? I mean, I mean, we don't like to talk about this kind of sin. It's the very kind of sin in our day we need to talk about. These are the same kinds of temptations that young people and old people alike find themselves wrestling with day to day in various ways. We live in such a sexualized society, there's no escaping, completely escaping the influence of illicit sex. It's in advertising, it's in movies, it's in innuendos, even in some children's programs. I mean, you could turn off the TV, you can shut down your internet, and that's good because Jesus says, you know, if your hand offends you, cut it off, metaphorically. If your eye offends you, gouge it out. And, and yes, you should be ruthless in, in those ways against your sin. But living in this world, in this day, where information is everywhere you look and your computer is in your front pocket, there's no escaping it. There's no escaping it. Now, I'm calling these sins, sins against your own body, because of what Paul says about sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6.18. He writes, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. When you give in to the temptations of sexual immorality, you're putting yourself in danger of experiencing all kinds of unwanted and painful consequences in your own body. And that's not even to mention the profound spiritual consequences in your soul. Sexual immorality... It's not only a sin against God, it's a sin against yourself. It's a sin against your body, as the author of Proverbs warns. Can a man take fire into his lap and not be burned? Now, I said that after each of these two lists, there is a motivating statement. So here's statement of motivation number one, chapter 3, verse 6. Paul says, on account of these things, this is the negative one. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these two, you once walked when you were living in them. Over and over, Paul says, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, uh, Galatians chapter 5, when Paul throws out a list of sexual sins and, and some other sins, he says, I have... I have told you before, just as I am telling you now, that people who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. In other words, people who, who habitually practice these sins go to hell. You know, that's a hard word to hear, but it's a word that some, especially religious people, need to hear. God is serious about our sins. There is... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you are not in Christ Jesus, as may be evidenced by the fact that you, you don't care one lick about your sin, then be warned. Paul is saying there is a time when you thought sexual immorality was okay. After all, your entire culture was awash in it. I mean, just think of Of uh, late Old Testament, early New Testament, Greece, and Rome. I'm not going to get into the details, we don't need to. This was a part of your very life, your very life. But around the time that you first heard the gospel, you discovered that the wrath of God is coming against those who practice such things. It's what the text says. And not only the wrath of God's abandonment, as in Romans 1, where God turns sinners over to their sins, here he's speaking of the eschatological judgment that will be brought to bear in the last day. When you stand before the throne and you hear the Lord say, depart from me, I never knew you. But you may say, Paul, um, weren't we rescued from that? And actually, that's Paul's point. You have already been rescued from God's wrath. Listen carefully. The grace of God has rescued you from the wrath of God. As Dane Ortland writes, the end times judgment that awaits all humans has, for those who are in Christ, already taken place. We who are in Christ no longer look to the future judgment, but to the past, at the cross, where we see all our punishment happening, all our sins being punished. In Jesus. Beloved, that is the gospel. I read this past week that John Newton, in a letter to a lady he was ministering to, counseling by mail, he reminded her of these words. See if they sound familiar. He says, Madam, our sins are many, but his mercies are more. In light of all of this, how should a Christian respond to temptations towards sexual immorality? Well, you should run. Run to the fountain of living water and drink deeply of the mercies of Christ. By this, you will mortify the deeds of the flesh. Mortify is just the old Puritan word for kill. You will mortify the deeds of the flesh and at the same time satisfy your thirsty soul. In fact... You will mortify the flesh by satisfying your thirsty soul. And this brings us to the second point. Number two, defeating sins against Christ's body. Paul continues in chapter 3, verse 8. But now you. He's talking about, a moment ago hes talking about the past. You too used to live in sexual sin. But now. But now, when is the now? Now that you have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and put into, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, now. That is, it may very well be that you were once part of that culture of sexual immorality. But not anymore. That's not where your identity is anymore. It doesn't matter what kind of sexual sin you've been involved in. You are not identified by that sin if you now know Christ. And this is reminiscent of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, where he writes, <clears throat> Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters nor adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revelers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of god and then he says these words and such were some of you you hear the past tense (laughs) you hear people in our culture say oh oh this particular lifestyle i mean nobody gets out of that and paul says oh yeah yeah You ought to see my church. you got people in my church, in my churches, Paul would say. There are people in my churches who I can say, yes, that was your identity, that's where you live, but not anymore. Such were some of you, but, and he continues, but you were washed, you were sanctified. Uh, That's the, the salvation kind of sanctification. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, close quote. This was a supernatural thing. I mean, that's the whole point. The whole point is these things must happen by the Spirit. And we'll see more of that in a moment. And by the way, because this is all true, you not only have a new relationship with God, but you have a new relationship with what class? With sin. If you have had blessing number one, a new relationship with God, then you already have a new relationship with sin. You don't love it anymore. You do it sometimes, but you hate it. And the more you come to know Christ, the closer you get to the light. Even less sin feels like more. And it just prompts us, it moves us to fly to Christ, to the fountain of living water. The grace of God has taught you to hate your sin. <clears throat> you no longer seek satisfaction in the broken cistern you dug with your own hands. Now you quench your soul at the fountain of living water, which is none other than Jesus Christ. Back in Colossians 3 now, Paul says, but now you must put them all away. Interesting term, this, put them all away. It's, it's a language of stripping oneself of their filthy, dirty clothes. Think, Ladies, you can think of changing diapers. Stripping oneself of those filthy, dirty clothes and putting on a new suit of clothes. Clean and pure and beautiful. There's that one scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Pilgrim has his old clothes taken away, thrown away, and they've dressed him in his beautiful, white, radiant suit of clothes. As Lewis Johnson says, clothes don't make the man, but they sometimes reflect the man, and they often reflect the man very accurately. And the things we wear, figuratively speaking, express the kind of faith we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's saying here that when I'm talking about clothing, I'm talking about it figuratively, spiritually. It expresses a kind of faith we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, our spiritual clothing, or what other people see in us. In the way that we live. To use a different figure, we might say, by their fruits you will know them. Only in Paul's analogy, people will know that you are Christians if you are dressed, let's just say it a little differently and profoundly, they will know you're a Christian by your holy life. And that's why he's talking about killing sin. Be holy, for I am holy. You belong to me. You're part of me. I am holy. You be holy. Get rid of the sin in your life that makes you unholy, no matter how small. The Apostle Peter used a familiar figure of speech in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4. Again, clothing as a figure Wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure behavior. Do not let your adorning, your clothing, be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be, listen carefully, the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight, is very precious. How a Christian woman adorns herself, how she presents herself to her husband and to the world matters, and and how husbands present themselves to their wives and to the world matters. We should be adorned with the gospel of Jesus Christ if these figures of speech in these figures of speech Christians adorn themselves with the apparel of holy lives and so paul says put away the old filthy dirty garments of sinful living and sinful thinking and sinful entertaining and then in case you were not struck by any of the sexual sins in the first list that he offers he offers us a new set and here they are anger Wrath, which is kind of intensified anger. Malice, when you're speaking badly of people and attempting to do them harm. Slander, interesting, the Greek word here is blasphemy. Obscene talk, and words you should not be saying. Do not lie to one another. And he emphasizes that, and, and no one is quite sure why. But he throws lying in at the... At the at the end, once again, Paul offers this statement of motivation. Why should you, who are united to Christ, stop sinning against others? Well, Paul says in verse 9, because you have put aside the old, listen to this, not old clothes, but the old self. Now, your, your version may even say the old man with its practices, and, and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's interesting that he says, you've done that. You've done that. In other places, it's, it's God who does it. And this is, this, is the, this is kind of the flavor you get when you study what sanctification is. And Philippians 2 is really helpful with this. That We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're to do that. I'm to do that. Work it out. Work hard at it with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So who who does the sanctification? Who makes you more like Christ? Well, I do, and he does. My work is dependent. His work is independent. But he gives us the privilege and responsibility of being involved in the process. So he says... And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul now changes the figure of speech from new clothes, as I said, to a new person. And This is what is pictured for us every time we witness baptism. The sinner dies to sin and the old self and is raised to new life and a new way of living. Beloved, this new way of of living is what undermined Rome. The gospel being lived out is what undermined Rome. It gave credibility to the gospel. And oh, how we need it now in our day. That's why you hear me say, by the way, in the waters of baptism, when I'm dunking someone in our baptistry, Uh, As they're going down and coming up, you'll hear me say these words. Buried with him in death, raised to walk. What's the rest of it? In newness of life. You get a new life. This is a new life. This is not just a spiritual stamp of approval from God. No, 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 no. Your life is supposed to change after you have come to Christ. And it will change if you have the Spirit. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect. And that's why we're having this whole discussion anyway. We have to work at killing sin. So, because you are now united with Christ, He by the Spirit is constantly, and I love this, He is constantly renewing us. It's constantly, and, and listen to me, all, all eyes up here for just a second. I understand how prone we are to hear God, I think we hear God saying, work harder, work harder. You're still not pleasing me, work harder. That is not the heart of Jesus, it's not the heart of God at all. Our sins are many, his mercy is more. And the more, the more we need his grace, the more lavish he pours it out. The more we need his love, the more love there is for us. It only increases with our sin. That's why Paul has to say, should we therefore sin? And his answer is no, don't be enslaved to that, kill it. But know this, the heart of God toward you has never changed. He died for you. He loves you. And everything that belongs to Christ is yours. So stop sinning. Work on it. Kill your sin. Maim it. Hack at it. Be ruthless with it. He is systematically and progressively making you more and more into the likeness of the person of Jesus Christ, the person God intended for you to be in the beginning when he created man. Now he's making you like that again, like Christ. The salvation that Jesus gives is life-changing. You get a new relationship with God. You get a new relationship with sin, and this is not in your notes, but finally we, we get a new relationship with other believers Look at verse eleven. Verse eleven says this. Are you looking in your Bibles? Here it is. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, but bar- barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all in all. And, and I gotta, I gotta confess to you that when I was studying that this week, I got to this verse and I and I asked myself, what in the world? Does this have to do with the price of tea in London? I mean, this seems like a total disconnect. Paul, have you been just dying to say this sometime, and now here's an empty space on your parchment? You're just going to write this thing in? You know, what does this have to do with the rest of the context? Well, all of us have committed these, um, these sins that he's listed. When I realized that each of these sins... And the second list are potentially sins that cause disunity. The sins that are, that are at the root of disunity. It suddenly occurred to me, this was Paul's concern. He's building churches. And the people who are receiving Jesus Christ are Gentiles. And they're Jews. And he kind of that, uh, emphasizes that at the beginning, neither Jew nor Gentile, uh, um, circumcised or uncircumcised. And then he names some others. But he's talking about the Jews, he's talking about the Gentiles, and you know what? Apart from Christ, we tend to hate each other. Anybody seen any of that recently? We tend to hate each other. And Paul is saying, look, there's no place for that in the church. No place for that. Are you white? Then you love your black brothers and sisters. Are you Asian? Then you love your white brothers and sisters. Are you from Africa? Are you from Spain? Are you from the North Pole? If you are in the church, then love everyone else who is in the church. Lay your life down for them. All of us have committed these mostly verbal sins against one another and others who lay claim to Christ. Paul is saying, when you come to know Christ, it's time to stop that. Stop it now. Why? Because Jesus is not only reconciling people to himself from every nation and background, he is also reconciling everyone to one another in the church. Instead of relating as different and hostile classes of people who are suspicious of one another and hostile toward each other, we are to be one. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. Just think, union with Christ. Hey, look around at your brothers and sisters here. Look around. I mean, when you step outside, look around at the different ethnicities and backgrounds. Did you know I'm from New Jersey? Don't judge me. Don't hate me. (laughs) God has done this. There's only one race. And when God brings us together by his spirit in the church, the inner workings of people within the church should be the very model of what the world is looking for and can't have until they bend their knee to Jesus. And oh, how we want them to have it. How do you defeat sin? This is the question we really don't have time for. I can tell you a couple of things. Number one, be ruthless with it. But here, just to stay in the context, Paul would say, listen, okay, so you're getting ready to leave the sermon, you're going to go outside, you're going to go home, and you're going to say, okay, okay, i got to start battling sin. How do I do that? Paul is going to say, uh, don't, don't turn to humanism, human philosophy. Don't turn to legalism, mysticism, or asceticism. None of that has any, any value against fleshly indulgence. So what should I do? What well, Paul's already told you. Chapter 3, verse 1. If you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is, Keep seeking Christ. And people have repeatedly asked me over this series, um, what are the things that he wants us to keep seeking? There's only one thing he mentions, Christ. And then he says in chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Keep seeking the things above, Keep setting your minds on Christ. Keep seeking Christ. Keep setting your mind on Christ, which is just another way of saying, come to the fountain of living water. It is overflowing for you. If you will come and drink deeply and daily and often each day, you will find that the power of sin diminishes. It becomes impotent. It becomes powerless against you. And you will, at the same time, defeat the temptation and sin and satisfy your thirsty soul. Beloved, through the gospel, God has not only given you a new relationship with Jesus, he's given you a new relationship with sin. And the soul-satisfying grace of God should make you hate your sin. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, I confess that I have experienced both sides of this. On the one hand, the joy of defeating sin by indulging in something more wonderful, more satisfying that is seeking Christ setting my mind on Christ and there have been other days many, many of them when I have set my, th- my thoughts and my mind on things of earth and found that temptation really did get a foothold oh Father I pray that you would rescue us from that Maranatha Maranatha Come, Lord Jesus, and until that day, I pray, Father, that by your grace, we would diligently and willingly seek and work to maim our sin, to render it powerless, to kill it if we can, and all of it to not only your great glory, certainly that, but to our own great joy. And we give you thanks for it all in Jesus' name.